Hello, it's time for Graphic Policy Radio's The Venture Brothers Podcast. Love the Venture Brothers cartoon, but are afraid of missing the plethora of historic references and layers of meaning behind each episode? Join pop culture and history experts Ilana Levin, that's me, whose secret identity is being a former film and art student, and Stephen Adewell, whose secret identity is he's an actual historian, for our podcast, examining each episode of Season 7 of the Hit Adult Swim show. Tonight's podcast is about Season 7, Episode 3, Arrears in Science. And here lies the spoilers. Hi, Stephen. Hey, how's it going? Great. Start us off. Sure. So uh, we start off pretty much from the same events that uh, episodes one and two ended with, namely the sort of Ventec Tower going crazy. Uh, the Venture team uh, attempt to evacuate. Um, uh, white Pete White's attack didn't seem to work in terms of actually stopping uh, Jonas Venture, who's... Uh, awfully resilient for just a head and a weird cyber skeleton. Mm-hmm. Um, I did like Rusty uh, sort of trying to step in and saying, Dad, if that's you, stop. You are not a building. Yes, I love that. I, the you are not a building thing felt particularly significant to me because they're talking about the significance of people's edifices and legacies. And so, you know, that particular venture tower was built by his brother, not by not by uh, his dad in the first place. But the sort of idea that like you are not the same thing as the structures that you've created or are part of physically, and that your identity is something separate from that, is one that gets lost in the the, the minds of uh, the father venture quite quite a bit. So, right, um, and we then get in sort of quick succession a kind of like. Um, like, sudden buildup of crisis moment, where, like, Phantom Limb and a bunch of attack helicopters arrive to take down the Blue Morpho, um, Brock, like, tries to get, uh, Hunter Gathers to, like, help out, because it looks like the Guild of Calamitous Intent is attacking, but he's busy, um, dealing with the scene of the crime at Dummy Corp, um, and then, you know, sort of everyone's watching as the Blue Morpho arrives, and as we suspected last episode, um, it is, in fact, Vendata. Da-da-da! A fan theory proven true. And then Kano speaks. Now, we know that Kano hasn't spoken since he had to kill a great man, and, you know, earlier in the series, people seemed to think they were talking about Jonah's venture, but I never thought that. <laughs> uh, it turns out the great man he had to kill was the Blue Morpho. And ever since then, he's been silent. And that makes a lot more sense now that we know more about his his uh, working relationship with uh, the Blue Morpho. The that... Kano is Kano. Kato. Yeah. Kano is Kato. Yeah, Kano is Kato. Uh, that's hard to say. <laughs> um so it would make more sense why that would be sort of a more personal thing to him. Uh, so we then go to credits and then we flip back to four months ago when uh, Vendata was forced to reboot because Brock attacked him in the bathroom of Don Hell's club. Don uh, Hell, of course, being a reference to the rock and roll bar in New York, Don Hill's. Right. Uh, relocated to uh, Colorado Springs, where the, the Venture Compound 
was originally. And this causes Vendata to, you know, as we were sort of guessing in that episode, kind of have a flashback that he sees his wife as the plane they're in is going down. He sees Rusty playing with the monarch, and we've seen that scene before in the mystery photo. Mm -hmm. So that linking Rusty and and um, the monarch, he sees his wife standing in front of the Newark house with baby monarch. Uh, and this is where I was wondering whether all of this was a RoboCop reference. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, when in RoboCop, when RoboCop starts to regain his consciousness is through a lot of flickers back to his family life and home life, which doesn't look the same visually as... You know, he didn't live in a giant house or anything like that, but um, but the way the technique of cutting into it as he regains his memory is totally how um, he regained function. Right. And then um, they sort of continue with that where Vendato just basically walks from uh, Don Hells to, uh, to Newark, um, and he's sort of going through his home and he's hallucinating, being remembering being the Blue Morpho, remembering... Sorry, go ahead. It's so heartbreaking, like, that whole sequence. Yeah, and, like, this episode gets pretty dark, I should say. Just, like, we haven't... We're, we're barely scraping the surface of just how terrifying this gets. Um, he remembers Jonas bringing him back from the dead. Uh, and then there's, like, a weird anaphylactus... Phylaxis slash Batman Silver Age costume joke... Uh, that involves the return of the superhero Taylor from last season, uh, which is just basically there to set up, like, why is there a second Blue Morpho suit that he can wear? Um, and we then get a sort of a typical Venture Brothers anticlimax, where what stops the whole building from going all Ghostbuster is that the Blue Morpho just sort of, you know, plugs in and shuts him off. Well, he doesn't really shut him off. He interfaces with him. Yeah. To, to... It's just that's what it looked like at first. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, God, that really worked. That whole sequence, I think, was incredibly powerful and emotional. And mm. I'm a big sucker for RoboCop, and he always looked like RoboCop, so that makes me happy. And I had said before, like, but RoboCop was a good guy. And yes, indeed, their parallel RoboCop is also underneath it all a good guy. Um, oh yeah, and you know when he when he uh, when he travels inside when a uh, Blue Morpho. Do, you know, Vendata travels inside of the uh, Jonas interface. It's totally like just like the numbers thing from the Matrix. Yeah, there were also some sort of like, um, like kind of line art um, grid stuff. I wasn't sure whether that was like the Matrix or whether there was some earlier kind of, you know, uh, holodeck ish hmm. style reference that I wasn't sure about. Um, and it is, I think, really kind of telling that what does Jonas's mind look like? It's his gross swingers pad from back in the day. Yeah, with all those masks. Um, I, I the women who swim by because they're underground are uh, the two actresses that Jonas and Blue Morpho hooked up with that are in the extortion tape. So the fact that the first thing that Jonas's mind points Blue Morpho to see as they converse is a subtle reminder of what he is holding over his head 
is just really manipulative and evil. Like he's holding it over this guy's head, even in the afterlife. Yeah. Um, we do learn something really interesting, uh, which is that Jonas's consciousness was in fact awake during the events of careers in science, um, trying to communicate with Rusty and the boys, uh, but they couldn't understand him because they don't speak Morse code. Yep. Which they actually, I think, had a joke about at the time. But I just love that clip of, it's on, it's off, it's on, it's off. I, I admit to having used that in my real life conversation. Mm-hmm. And I also enjoy Pete White asking if this is a SCSI protocol, which is like a, a coding protocol. So, Right. Uh, to clarify, uh, the SCSI protocol, which is spelled S-C-S-I, is a set of standards for physically connecting and transferring data between computers and peripheral devices. In other words... That's an accurate description of how the Jonas problem box and Vendata are interfacing. It's basically how people used to connect different devices before USB became a thing. Um, And then we get more of uh, Street Life from Sharky's Machine that uh, Jonas sort of has the song stuck in his head, probably because it was the the last thing that um, he experienced in in life mm-hmm. um i was i was reading on i think the av club comments and someone pointed out that um uh the song in the movie charlie's machine is in the like first three minutes oh wow so that so movie that, did not go on very long no that basically it had just started when when the the gates opened and killed everybody hmm um, that timing actually does impact my thoughts about who... Well, we'll get to it later. Yeah. Um, okay. So we then learned that, you know, as we had suspected, right, the Blue Morpho uh, died in the plane crash in, in 1976, and that Jonas brought him back to life, and that, interestingly, the action team, like, who are normally a bunch of amoral assholes, um, actually have a problem with, with Jonas bringing him back from the dead. Um, they sort of go all, you know, you're meddling in God's domain thing. That's probably because they realize they could be next. Yeah. Um, he does seem to be someone who had a kind of contingency plan for everybody. Well, my question is, wh- wh- we don't know why Blue Morpho's plane went down. And it went down with him and his kid and wife in it. And th- you know that that's going to be a mystery that's going to be revealed later on. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that... Um, Jonas did it. It's possible that someone from the guild did it. Um, you know, he was at that point in time, um, you know, uh, Jonas's, you know, attack dog. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and the guild wanted him dead, had a bounty on his head. So, you know, there's, there's lots of possibilities. Um, we also see, by the way, you know, they were kind of right about like why it was a bad idea to, bring um and it's sort of continuing kind of a frankenstein theme in the chapter is that one of jonas's biggest problems in addition to being just a giant selfish dick is he has no attention span he he's not qualified to you know care for another life so mm-hmm. within a few years like vendata has been demoted to dog walker which if you remember uh, the villains accusing Blue Morpho of being Jonas Venture's attack dog. Yeah. It's just even more heartbreaking because he's been demoted from attack dog to like literally just dog. 
Yeah, and uh, we see Vindot. The reason why he was, uh, why Venturian was uh, gotten rid of, is that he snapped when um, he saw Rusty, who seems to have been a bit of a sadistic kid. Um, uh, you know that caused him to have memories of uh, Rusty making his kid cry. Wasn't he like trying to like burn ants or something like that? In in uh, you know when when. Uh, Venturian tried to strangle him, yeah. So, the thing that's interesting that, uh, again, I read this on a comment thread and it, it sparked a memory, is that um, Rusty talks about having traumatic memories of uh, a metal man trying to choke him when he writes his musical uh, autobiography last season. Hmm. Uh, so, clearly, like, that was, you know... In terms of, like, you know, the legacy and how, like, you know, there's unintended consequences. Like, this is part of a long list of things where, you know, Jonas Ventures' inattention has caused Rusty to, like, go through trauma. But also, like, the fact that Rusty was burning ants alive with a, with a um, mag- magnifying glass, that's, like, such the classic violent kid science kid amoral kid who wants to experiment with things at the expense of other living beings like that's him acting out as was his dad and blue morpho tried to stop him from that and this is when kano killed him um which now the interesting thing is like you know in terms of the sort of like world buildy politics side uh this is where like brock and the council square off where Brock accuses them of breaking the rules they accuse him of breaking the rules uh Brock brings up the dummy corp attack which of course Phantom Limb has no idea about but obviously uh Dr. Mrs. and the Red Death feel very awkward about um it's just all of these sort of colliding agendas and agreements um and secrets I I love that Dean literally gives Hank an info dump yeah, scene. Hank just, just sort of crosses the street and is like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> well, well-timed info dump. I certainly didn't need a refresher, but I think many people would. And for some reason, the notion of Dean giving the info dump is just very funny to me. Well, I also love Hank's like reaction. is just like, this is too much for me, but cool. Zomb- zombie grandpa head. <laughs> so, then we see... Yeah. Yeah, they're discussing... The team at the um, the villains are talking at, at the diner. We'll go into details about who they are and what that means in a minute. Um, Doctor Z built Vendata in his lost weekend phase in 1977, where he's, he's going to watch Blondie and the Runaways and the Germs at Whiskey A No Go. The actual club in L.A. was called the Whiskey A Go Go. There's his Whiskey A No Go. That's quite a, a lineup, by the way. I, I don't yeah, know if a that's a lineup. Act that ever actually would have happened, but but a girl can dream. Um, there's also a huge Ramones poster in the background of that of that um, of that shot. Um, we see him, Dr. Z coming in with Harry Nelson, H A I R Y N I L S S O N, who clearly is the werewolf version of famous 60s, 70s songwriter Harry Nelson. Uh, he wrote a lot of sort of pop standards of the period. He wrote some stuff for the Monkees' later works. Um, he wrote and sang Coconut, which is the outro music from Reservoir Dogs. So I feel like everybody's at least heard that. And then also 
he sang uh, the theme song of Midnight Cowboy, which actually was a cover, but it's like the, everybody's talking about me. I don't hear the word they're saying, only the echoes of my mind. That whole song, which is like Which is the another most... like New York City street yes. song. Yes, exactly. It's like so New York, so 70s. Um, and then the other vet baddie with him is someone who I would argue is possibly an actual supervillain, Shrill Spectre, who is Phil Spectre. Phil Spectre being the genius uh, music producer, inventor of the wall of sound which was a at the time like the most complex and robust studio setup that had ever happened in music and he put it to work in popular music which was really shocking to people at the time they're like why would you do this complex thing this is just silly pop music and well the results were that he produced like the most gorgeous and complex you know music of the era he did all of the famous girl groups he was the husband and abusive husband at that of Ronnie Spector of the Ronettes. And um, he used to like to pull a gun on people and threaten them. And he shot a woman and is in jail and is basically a real life supervillain. Like he's a genius talent and a violent, abusive piece of shit. And uh, his superpower in this is his wall of sound powers. And I just lost it. That's wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. I also noticed that there's a killer whale movie poster in the background when they enter, but I don't know if that's like a Jaws joke, maybe. I, I don't, kind of I don't know. a follow-up from, from last week? Yeah, um, it might be. So, you know, learning more about uh, Dr. Z, like, he clearly realizes, like, that Venturian, you know, that this is Venturian. Um, he irons his brain, which is like, made me wonder if this is a, a Fooly Cooly reference, which is um, an experimental anime that was also like a big Adult Swim hit. Um, and of course, the like robot having an evil switch, I mean, that is like an old, old... I think that was in like the... F I want to say like the very first uh, Simpsons uh, Halloween. Holiday. Yep. Um, yeah, the, the the crusty doll has an evil switch and a good switch, yeah. Yeah, um, and we also know that we learned that uh, Vendata's face was a fake put over um, uh, the Blue Morpho's face so that no one would recognize him, which always made sense to me because Vendata's face didn't look like the Blue Morpho's face. So yeah, that and it's not, it wasn't that obscured. Somebody would have noticed. Yeah. Uh, More Frankenstein stuff, right? Like, this is a very Frankenstein-themed... Piece. Yes. Um, uh, although, like, Dr. Z, you know, for being a supervillain, is actually one of the more, like, okay least, dudes. least yeah. shitty. Mm -hmm. uh, although he does immediately get busted for coke, which is just, like, the most 1977 thing <laughs> that's ever. The, yeah, that's basically the point, right? Although, my, my question, I mean, do you think that the face was an act, was somebody's face in particular? Um, not really. I think, if I had to guess... I think it's more that they wanted to have the Blue Morphos face, but also do more of a, um, more of a, a RoboCop reference because it looks a little bit more like Peter Weller. Peter Weller's face. Okay, I just want like somebody within the story. Like, this is this a body part of someone we know? TB, right. T TBD, TBD. Also, we know that Blue Morpho had sex with Doctor Z, so it's sort right. of a weird connection that. Dr. Z remakes him physically. Yeah. Well, you know, it, I mean, maybe that's why he was moved to what is, 
arguably something of an act of mercy is I mean hmm. I don't know whether he know that the Blue Morpho had sex with him on Jonas Venture's orders getting a little ahead of ourselves mm-hmm. um, but uh, anyway so it's at this point where the NYPD shuts down their conflict because the Thanksgiving Day Parade is about to go straight through their area um, this made me wonder about like how the um calendar is is syncing up in sort of venture world versus our world because it's like nowhere near thanksgiving now and it wasn't near thanksgiving when season six was airing oh they never sync their show up with the real seasons other than like the very first year where they had that christmas episode so i didn't really make much of it but i love the inclusion of the thanksgiving day parade because that is like one of the most iconic things connected to the part of town where the venture compound is Right. Um, And, of course, when they can't stand on the street, they decide to go to the diner, which is, like, the most um, New York thing, you know. And uh, the monarch decides he's going to kill the Blue Morpho, um, uh, which is going to have significance in a minute. So we then... And this is where um, it's kind of easy to get a little bit... uh, geographically turned around we then move over to the east side um where uh ventec has a, a macy's day balloon of rusty venture getting inflated and hank and dean are watching from uh the steps of the natural history museum um and this like immediately got me in the memories because uh, one year when I was a kid, uh, we actually went and watched the balloons get inflated from somebody's apartment, uh, which was overlooking them. And it is, I have to say, a very boring process to watch if you're a kid. <laughs> I like the, the diagnosis piece. Do you want to hit on that? Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, Hank is sort of talking to Dean about, like, why is it that he goes so method? Um, and brings up a whole bunch of, like, previous characters, uh, like him being the Batman, um, <laughs> and, and some other ones, and, you know, wondering if he's got, um, uh, multiple personality disorder, which is, of course, like, a very genre movie thing to have, and Dean, who's, you know, the only one of them going through college, um, I think more accurately sort of says, no, you've got an overactive imagination and maybe a touch of ADD, not dissociative identity disorder, because that's not really how DID works. Yeah. I love him saying, is this the museum where everything comes to life at night? Um, Because, I mean, I think that was where things came to life in that movie night at the museum. But for me, Mm -hmm. it'll always be connecting back to that famous Sesame Street special where they're all in the museum, where Big Bird gets locked in the museum overnight and hangs out with the spirit of an Egyptian king who was a boy. I love that thing. Anyway. Um, so then um, the monarch gets towed again, which is one of my favorite gags from um, last season that just like, you know, they know where the impound is, impound lot is because they've broken into it before. Uh, and this is where, like, again, things get really fucking dark because we then get another incident in the Blue Morpho's history where he's having a freak out over the Bob Crane style home movie of him and 
Dr. Venture. Sorry, you, can you explain Bob Crane? Oh, uh, Bob Crane was the, uh, was an actor. He was the, like, lead role in Hogan's Heroes. And he had a thing for, uh, homemade pornography. Uh, and he got, uh, beaten to death. And he was portrayed by, uh, Harry Kinnear. Uh, sorry, Greg Kinnear in, uh, I forget the name of the movie. Um. Yeah. Anyway, um... So, he mentions at the time that, like, he's trying to have a kid, it's not going well, he thinks it's his fault, and Jonas does the really gross thing of basically knocking up his wife under the guise of fertility treatments. Which is super gross. Like, you have to wonder, did he, like, straight up have sex with her? Probably not. Or I think do she a like went switch thing. I I think she went under for quote treatment and he had sex with her when she was unconscious. I think he's a rapist. I mean, it's quite possible and it's certainly not out of character for him. The on the other hand, like we know that they were all kind of part of the swingers scene, so I don't know. It's po- yeah, you're right. It's possible, I guess. Yeah. <sighs> Putting it out. I think out it's there. how dark you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um so as the two of the dead guys watch this scene uh, you notice that the blue morpho is starting to get more human as he remembers being blackmailed and that you know he was never able to get out from under the the tape and was made to do more and more sort of degrading and criminal things like at one point he stole plutonium like that's you know that's really towing the line between super science and, and super villainy um so the council reassemble at the uh, Star Struck slash Stardust Diner at 51st and Broadway. And you had something you wanted to... Well, I mean, that is a real place. Um, the interior actually looked like the Moonstruck Diner to me. But this is, there's a diner that they're referring to where they have like the whole singing waitresses thing. And um, it's right near the theater district. Uh, I love that he... Um, Red Death tries to order the Patty Lupone melt after the Broadway singer performer Dynamo uh, and the side by side salad by Sondheim, bit like the side by side by Sondheim musical review of Sondheim. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, instead of the fries, <laughs> um, which also fits with his whole sort of you know, like normcore dad, mm-hmm. you know, trying to watch his weight kind of thing. Uh, and then he reminisces about when he was in this diner before, in the battle days when uh, the guild was underground, right before he went off to uh, Gargantua 1. Da, da, da. And then we get a flashback. An 80s flashback. It's so cool. Yeah. So, what is the Red Death dressed like? He's dressed as the Kurgan. Because, um, you know, you you had been saying, like, You'd been predict. You'd been predicting that there'd be a Clancy Brown, because Clancy Brown is the voice of the Red Death. That there'd be a moment where they would really draw on his vast history of characters he's played, and um, they really finally did it. The Kurgan was when he was the villain on Highlander, and uh, he had the same mohawk, so they just leaned right into that. We have a lot of fun um, uh, villain concepts in this scene. There's the Supersonic Man who is uh, Freddie Mercury, totally in his live at Wembley Stadium getup, which makes sense that you've, you've heard Freddie Mercury sing, describing it as supersonic is accurate. Um, his, he has the Flash's powers, and he's wearing a Flash-like t 
t-shirt underneath his famous yellow jacket. And Queen did the soundtrack for the Flash Gordon movie, which is not the same as the superhero of the Flash, but it's still a Flash connection. Yeah. Um, he also calls himself, they also say like Mr. Fahrenheit, the supersonic man, and, and Freddie Mercury calls himself Mr. Fahrenheit in the lyrics of Don't Stop Me Now. Uh, we also get uh, Laugh Riot, who is a sort of a visual knockoff of uh, the comedian from Watchmen, which was like the 1980s graphic novel that like announced that like comics were serious business now, uh, and also sort of fits with the whole kind of theme of this group of supervillains as being unsatisfied with sort of the traditional arching ways and wanting to kind of deconstruct the whole superhero supervillain uh, thing. Which is great because they refer to themselves as being new wave. And of course, new wave was a term used to refer to like a lot of the eighties music that they'd be referencing there as well as the comics. Uh, another villain is hate bit who seems to be an eight bit video game projection, eighties video games, stab girl, we have heard of her bravery from the last episode. Uh, to me, she looks kind of like Tank Girl from the comics, but that's like a 90s character. Um, she also looks like Harley Quinn from the movies more recently. And the name Stab Girl reminds me of the name Hit Girl from the Mark Millar stuff that better, the, le- the less spoken of the better. Right. Um, and this is where we find out that Vendata came up with the plan to arch Jonas, which, like, that's where it's getting even more dark, because now it's not just um, the Blue Morpho as this sort of endlessly put-upon cuckold slash, you know, blackmail victim, but now he's, like, looking for revenge. Um, and this is where Brock calls bullshit, because he says that every OSI grunt knows that it was Sphinx that killed uh, Dr. Jonas uh, Sr. And this turns out to have been a cover story, that the Sovereign uh, used his shape-shifting powers to impersonate the Sphinx commander and claim credit for the death of Jonas in order to prevent OSI from seeking retaliation against the guild. And of course, when I see Bowie wearing an Egyptian headdress, I think of Bowie wearing an Egyptian headdress uh, in a very famous photo spread. He did bridging his look from the Hunky Dory album with his reinvention as Ziggy Stardust. Now, that was the early 70s and this is the 80s, but still, it's it's a real visual reference there. Right. And here we learn a little bit of backstory that um, the Sovereign's claiming of credit set off the Pyramid Wars, which is like a parallel to basically G.I. Joe versus Cobra, um, that Brock like fought in when he was first uh, working for the OSI. And that like learning that this was all a lie is like a you know, really fucks with his head. Um, and we also see, um, you know, meanwhile, that uh, the paper boy on Gargantua 1, like, announcing the movie, this is Bud Manstrong, uh, who talks about being the paper boy on, quote-unquote, movie night in Careers of Science. So, like, we're really doubling back to... Um, uh, we're really doubling back to that episode as the episode, this episode really gets into the question of who killed uh, Jonas Venture. Real quick, though, can you remind our listeners who Bud Manstrong is? 
Oh, Bud Manstrong was the uh, sexually repressed slash Manchurian candidate um, astronaut who was left in charge of Gargantua 1 in the episode Careers in Science, who then, um, you know, uh, when the satellite uh, fell to Earth, uh, gained um, momentary heroism when he accidentally piloted Gargantua 1 into a terrorist um, uh, headquarters. And this is the episode, I'm forgetting the name of it, where they uh, all are invited to the West Wing for dinner. Um, Which, you know, sort of, we're seeing all of these kind of like tying back of, you know, everything leads back to Gargantua 1. So we see a fight between Vendetta and... Jonas, but we don't see the conclusion of that fight, which strikes me as a very deliberate choice on the part of the creators. Yeah, definitely. So, who do you think? Who do you think opened the uh, the gate? So, you know, I'm I'm not sure because it could be Vendata. Uh, oh, and we should also say, you know, to to add more ambiguity to these proceedings that the action team were late to movie night because of Colonel Gentleman. So they didn't see it either. They see um, uh, Doctor... Sorry, they they get Jonas's body and are about to put him in the problem machine. And by the way, this is even more darkness. Uh, Rusty leaving behind his little plastic toy causes them to stumble and break the frozen body. So in a way going all the way back to careers in science, it kind of is Rusty's fault that his dad uh, was not successfully revived. Fault slash blessing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially since we know, you know, what kind of person he is now. Um, So I'm not sure. I think, you know, if they wanted it to be Vendata, that I think they had an opportunity to to directly show it in this episode... Um, I don't think it was, you know, the, I think the Red Death would say if that was him yeah, or, or his team. You know, I don't know if Red Death would say that in front of Brock because Brock is so aligned with Rusty. No, no, but I think he would have said it last episode when, oh. when he talked about being at movie night. Right, right. That's a good point. Um, to, to, just to Dr. Girlfriend. Okay. Yeah, so I'm sort of leaning towards, like, someone on the venture side. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Um, so... Kano, maybe, then. Certainly he had motivation. No, because he was, he was still traveling to the spaceship. Oh, right, right. I don't know who on the venture side would have been there, then, frankly. I mean, Bud Manstrong's the only named character, but he's a paper boy, so I don't know why... Anyway... Um, I think this is a question that we, we need to keep under our hats. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's at this point that Action Man has a stroke, uh, which was predicted by Dr. Orpheus way back in episode 11 of season one, uh, the episode title past tense, when he said uh, something like two years, seven months, a stroke. Um, and that was an episode that was all about... Um, Rusty's time at college and specifically when he found out that his dad was dead. Uh, so it's sort of all circling back around to movie night at Gargantua 1. Um, 
so let me see what's next the um, monarch and the 21 discuss life model decoys yeah so um i mean they there's not even really anything for us to explain it's just like 21 just straight up makes the reference and it's like yeah you know hunter gathers yeah, no like... but we have to explain life model decoys life oh, model sure. decoys is a reference to marvel comics um nick fury uh, they invented a thing in the Steranko era of Nick Fury where he would just make fake robotic copies of himself that basically also had his intelligence in them. And so whenever you'd see like Agent Nick Fury dying, it was actually just one of his life model decoys. And this is a joke that Marvel, not a joke, like a, a, a narrative trick that Marvel pulls out quite frequently. It's really a big trope over there. Right. And we should also say for... for those of you uh, who are just sort of tuning in recently, that Hunter Gathers is sort of like 50% um, uh, Hunter Thompson and 50% Nick Fury. So, Very of, true. Uh, so the two sides like finally agree that uh, basically they're going to take joint custody of uh, the Blue Morpho and they're going to disassemble him. Uh, meanwhile, back at uh, the Ventec headquarters, which has been sealed shut because of the Venture seal f- smashing down in front of the doors, which, you know, kind of obvious symbolism. Uh, Pete White uses the shrink ray to get the action man and company out of the building and to a hospital uh, and isn't a great shot. And um, Colonel Gentleman uses the phrase Maggie's drawers. Which is, uh, if you've seen the movie, uh, JFK is a reference to uh, Lee Harvey Oswald supposedly being a very bad shot. Hence why there had to be uh, a, um, a second gunman on the grassy knoll. But uh, what, what does Maggie's drawers mean? Uh, it just means that you can't shoot. That, like, you you, you miss. Oh, like that's, that, that's the term for it. Got it. Yeah, that, like, if you just, if you went for, like, a whole round and didn't hit the target that you were just called Maggie's drawers. Got I don't it. think they're like, there's a specific okay. thing. Um, so it also sets up, uh, Dr. Orpheus communicating with a roach in order to take the action man, uh, and co to a hospital, which is so ant man, like that whole thing with Dr. Morpheus, Orpheus sending, communicating with like the, the, the cockroach and they all pile on his back. That's Ant-Man's powers, and it was adorable. And I like the little rhyme he did. Yeah, so at this point, um, as, um, you know, the Blue Morpho is distracted, Jonas communicates with Rusty over uh, Wi-Fi that he wants to swap his brain into the Blue Morpho's body, which is just like, this is getting even more dark by the second. It's really where, like the tension just starts to, you know, ratchet up and up and up and up and up. Um, and, you know, Billy is the one who says he won't do it because he's, like, one of the few characters in this episode who has a, a moral conscience. Uh, and then, you know, Billy is definitely the moral conscience here, but Pete White is really the action hero of the episode. He's the person who's just keeping cool when the heat is all around and like taking actions that make sense in order to address situations like bringing out the shrink gun to get them outside the building that was super smart even if he is a bad shot he's a real problem solver and he also is charging at things with an axe earlier i think he's really found himself in a lot of ways and i think billy has too which is why i have a prediction i think 
either Pete or Billy or both are going to die heroically some point this season. Okay. I just have a feeling about it. All right. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on it. Um, so it's at this point that the monarch sort of bursts in because he is willing to do the swap because he's amoral like that. Um, and we then split to the blue morpho and Jonas arguing about who actually killed who. Um, we kind of already discussed like who actually was responsible for movie night, but it's enough to get the blue morpho to sort of temporarily log out. And... What does he see? So Blue Morpho glitches um, and his brain identifies the facial geometry of the monarch who is right in front of him and IDs him as his son, Malcolm Fitzcarraldo. Um, The question we have here is, oh my gosh, Fitzcarraldo, which made us both think about the uh, film by Werner Herzog. And we have different thoughts about the significance of that. Um, I, I thought about the relationship between Werner Herzog and his leading man, lead actor, Klaus Kinski. Uh, Herzog was a very abusive man. He pulled a gun on Klaus Kinski. He put him in all kinds of life-threatening and dangerous situations, as well as all of his other actors. Just truly unacceptable. Um, And uh, Kinski almost died uh, making works for Herzog. And it made me think about how the Blue Morpho had his own life under threat constantly through his partnership with um, Jonas Venture. Yeah, whereas I kind of felt like, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about the, the Herzog-Kinski thing, but in terms of specifically the character of Fitzcarraldo, um, I think the monarch is actually slightly a better fit, because the whole thing about Fitzcarraldo is he's a romantic obsessive. Like, he's got this impossible dream of trying to bring an opera house up the Peruvian Andes. Um... And the monarch has always been sort of like similarly this kind of, I mean, romantic, not in the, in the sort of lowercase r sense, mm-hmm. but he's always been this character who's absolutely obsessed with Jonas Venture and sort of almost, you know, arching for arching's sake. He's not a sort of a, um, a careerist villain. He's not a punch clock villain. He's sort of an artistic villain in that sense. Um, and this is where... Uh, the fight between the Blue Morpho and Jonas spills out into the physical uh, with sort of Jonas on top of um, on top of the Blue Morpho on top of Rusty with the Monarch on top so you sort of got fathers and sons and fathers and sons as they go down the escalator and then the Blue Morphos um, jet boots take them out of the hole in the building um, and then, of course, um, the Monarch and Rusty uh, are saved by the uh, Rusty Venture Thanksgiving Day balloon, whereas the fathers land on the steps of the Natural History Museum and are both dead, and the Monarch takes the credit for the hit. Oh, my God, I just thought about this. The, the, the fathers land on the museum steps because they are the relics. They belong in a museum. They're the past. Right. And also, who are they right in front of the statue of? Teddy Roosevelt? Right. Who is this, like, likewise, this sort of, you know, you know, uber white dude, you know, um, explorer, colonialist, you know, I mean, the statue is literally him on a horseback with, like, 
a Native American on one side and, a, you know, a Rough Rider on the other, kind mm-hmm. of being the loyal uh, non-white servants. And it's sort of like, you know, you can definitely see a kind of uh, critique of that era, you know, and that's very close to, like, the whole era of pulp heroes like um, uh, Doc Brass and The Shadow, who these guys were, uh, you know, clearly patterned after. Not not Doc, Doc Brass is a fi- is the fictional one. Sorry, not Doc Planetary. Brass. I, yes, I always who's who's the original one? <laughs> um, uh, Doc Samson. Yep, Doc Samson, Man of Brass. Man of Brass. That's yes. it. it. But I did get the shadow. Indeed, I know the shadow. Um, so what I keep thinking about is what does it mean that the super science dad is evil and that the action hero dad is the good guy? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think they're kind of both a little bit more like one is definitely more sinned against than sinning but like yeah. they're they're both pretty morally compromised people sure um, but the degree is quite striking <laughs> and yeah, also and the fact that like the emotional reaction that vendata has to seeing his son is like hey, that recognition and like seeing him is like very powerful he, he clearly loves him and very much cares yeah and you know monarch by contrast, sort of doesn't have the freedom in the moment to express his emotions because, like, he has a moment where he's his daddy, where he's, like, clearly recognizing, um, like, who this person is. Uh, and I, I should say, like, before that, like, when the Monarch and Rusty land on the balloon, they're, like, holding each other in their arms. Like, it's clearly a moment where they've, like, maybe just for now, um, sort of put aside... Uh, their one-sided vendetta. Hmm. Um, but, you know, it's also really interesting that, like, the monarch takes this moment to, like, totally recast his status, that now he's the guy who killed the villain killer, he's the guy who killed Jonas Venture Sr., and that kind of makes him the, like, you know, for the moment, the top villain. Well, the son must kill the fathers in order to find himself in his power. Yeah, it's very uh, sort of Joseph Campbell yep. uh, uh, slash. Uh, um, oh, uh, hold on. What's the the White Goddess? Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah, I, I was blanking and on the Star other. Star Wars, everything. Yes. Oh, and the <laughs> Golden Bough and every other weirdo mythology yeah. book. Um, oh gosh. I mean, so yeah, like the bad dad and the good dad are both killed in order for the son to move forward in his life. So yeah, post credits scene. Yeah, so uh, we sort of see the cleanup. Um, OSI gets Jonas Venture's head. Uh, the Guild of Calamitous Intent takes possession of uh, Vendata slash the Blue Morpho. So there's a possibility that both of these characters could be back or not. Uh, the Action Man is in a coma. Again. Yeah, uh, and the Triad is moving to not the not Greenwich Village, but to the Lower East Side. So uh, they do make, uh, when when they're looking at the property online that Dr. Morpheus wants them to, Dr. Orpheus wants them to acquire, um, he points out that this particular building has a Dr. Strange style window, which it does, but it's actually, re- they're actually referring to a real actual building that's in the Lower East Side that I actually recognized looking at, at this anime, at looking at this. Um, you can see on the web ad, the end of the word Rivington Street. Um, so I looked up what is exactly the name of that abandoned synagogue on Rivington Street. 
And it is the Emery Roth-designed synagogue on Rivington Street, formerly Adath Jeshurun of Jesse, which was a Jewish-Romanian synagogue built in 1903. It's actually the synagogue that the Gershwins went to, um, George and Ira. Uh, So, yeah, we have the triad locating themselves in a very real New York building, which is a building which is now working, it's now actually an art studio. It's not an operational shul at this point. Right. And uh, so after, you know, the status quo has now been restored and peace is returned to the universe, uh, Team Venture goes up to the roof of uh, Ventec Tower to uh, watch the Macy's Day Parade, and lo and behold, the rusty balloon breaks free and uh, careens down Ventec Tower, knocking over a lamppost, and this is a reference to a real... Uh, incident that happened on Thanksgiving 1997 when uh, there were high winds and the um, handlers lost control of uh, Barney the dinosaur and (laughs) it uh, knocked over a lamppost and killed a woman. Mm. What a terrible pointless way to die. Good God. Yeah, so you know, this is sort of a a very ominous note for the episode to end on. Um, we even get like but an it's also the humanity very... kind of thing from the from like the TV broadcasters, the US. The yeah, US. and and you can see that sort of everyone's scattering as you know they're up on the roof, and this giant balloon is heading straight for them. So it's uh, it's not all as well. Well, I mean, also like the ashes of Jonas Venture probably got lost in that moment. Oh yeah, evacuated the the roof view. Um, well, ashes and or head. I mean, mm, my goodness, yeah, ashes uh, and or head. TBD, right? So that's scary. Yeah. Um, so, what did you think of the episode? I mean, this was a wonderful episode. Everything was building towards it. It totally paid off. You know, one of my critiques of the show is I feel like sometimes they resolve conflict by deflating it. In, in order to make everybody happy, which is a fine and fun and generous act to do when you love your characters as much as these, these writers do. But it only means something if it's also possible for people to experience pain. And I think that this episode really stroked the perfect balance of doing that thing, like you said in the beginning of the episode, where they actually resolve something complicated quickly through, and it, and it sort of decompresses this tension moment but in actually having it have a real emotional payoff of and and themes and I, I think this is incredibly strong work yeah i mean my my feeling is that it is the best episode of the season it is probably the best episode of the last two seasons and one of the best ones ever just in terms of like as you said the sort of the combination of sort of real emotional payoff combined with the sort of deep textual layering that they do where you know you're getting payoff across you know six seasons and it's all sort of fitting into place uh perfectly i'm i'm really impressed yeah reflecting back on the name of this episode arrears in science arrears spelled a r r e a r s arrears in science plays off the episode title uh careers in science which was an episode in season one and an episode that we keep comparing 
to this one because there were so many plot points in that episode that are brought up here as well. Uh, the, that episode, Careers in Science, is the one that took place on Gargantua 1, where we're first introduced to the space station. Uh, we see Bud Manstrong, and they first encounter the problem light. Uh, it's on, it's off, it's on, it's off, and so on. This episode really concludes all of these open plot points from that episode. The word arrears means money that is owed and should have been paid off earlier. So this is the episode where the debts of the fathers are finally paid off. It's really great symmetry. Absolutely. I'm glad we have more episodes in this season, although it might not be that many more. But we both said that we felt like this seemed like it was actually the finale of the last season. Yeah. Yeah, if, if, like, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a, a critique because I think, like, if if you binge this instead of watch it when it comes out, I think you won't notice or care. Mm-hmm. But, it like, it does feel like the last three episodes <clears throat> were the end of season six, that they just sort of ran out of money um, or time or whichever. Um, and... Uh, you know, just sort of kicked it down to the, this season, which kind of, you know, makes me wonder, like, okay, so how much, you know, new arc is there to this season? But on the other hand, like, I'd much rather have payoff than no payoff. Oh, absolutely. I mean? we, we know of at least two more episodes, but there might be more than that. Yeah. Is that our understanding? Okay, well, well there's two episodes that have that have uh, that are listed on like all the wikis as having um, like episode titles and air dates. I, I don't see. know if those are the only two episodes. So it's possible we might only have two more. It is possible. Oof. Well, great moment. Love this episode. A plus plus plus. So thanks for listening, guys. Um, continue uh, to keep listening to us on Blog Talk Radio or on iTunes. I'm hoping to be able to get these episodes up on SoundCloud or Stitcher, but somebody had a baby, and uh, that's not me, Lord knows. Um, and uh, so we're still trying to coordinate some of that on the graphic policy side. Uh, where can our listeners find you online, Stephen? So uh, you can find me on Twitter at Stephen Atwell. Uh, you can find me on uh, Tumblr and WordPress at Race for the Iron Throne. And I'm on Twitter all the goddamn time at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. Let me know what you think. Want your feedback? Uh, should there be less singing? Should there be more singing? Um, and join us next week for our next episode of the Venture Brothers podcast. Go Team, team Venture! Team Podcast. Podcast. Okay. We're, we are never getting that right. We, we need better coordination. This is just because we're not in the same room. Yeah, that's pretty much it. See you next week. All right, bye. This is a production of Graphic Policy Radio, brought to you by graphicpolicy.com, their site where comics and politics meet. Be sure to visit us every day for news and articles from a political lens on geek culture and beyond graphicpolicy.com.